Hi, and welcome to The Grasp Podcast, a mini-series where we bring you the key insights on the role of gender and age in social protection and how they relate to pressing issues of our day. Gender and age play a disproportionately large role in the way people experience risks, vulnerabilities, and opportunities. Events at different stages in life, like marriage, childbearing, or retirement, can mean that women and girls are at a heightened risk of experiencing poverty. Social protection, such as cash transfers or health insurance, can help address poverty and vulnerability, as well as supporting people during shocks from childhood through to old age. Despite the benefits of social protection systems, many fail to address gender and life course-related vulnerabilities and inequalities, limiting its potential for poverty reduction. Today's discussion will be led by Nyasha Tiribayi and Ramya Subramanian from UNICEF Inicenti and Lauren Whitehead from UNICEF Program Group. With that, here are the specialists to begin our exploration of the gender-responsive and age-sensitive social protection program. Hello everyone, I am Nyasha Tiriwai, Social Policy Manager at UNICEF Innocenti. I lead and manage social protection research, including research on the design, implementation and impact of social protection programs. Hello everyone, I am Ramya Subramanian, Chief of Research on Gender, Rights and Protection at Innocenti. I lead a program of research that includes work on children's rights and protection from violence, harm and exploitation with a strong focus on gender equality. And I'm Lauren Whitehead, the Social Protection and Gender Lead for UNICEF HQ, where I manage a portfolio leveraging social protection for gender equality outcomes across various different themes, gender-based violence, economic empowerment, care and support, climate, inclusive social protection, and others. So Lauren, uh, what do we know about the potential of social protection to address issues of poverty, child well-being, and gender equality? Well, we know that although women and children stand to benefit the most from social protection interventions based on their relative levels of vulnerability, feminization of poverty, age bias of poverty, et cetera, um, right now fewer than a quarter of children worldwide, so around 24% of children worldwide are covered by any form of social protection benefit. Um, And even during COVID-19, when we saw there was disproportionate impact, especially on women, fewer than 20% of COVID measures actually address gender in any way, and even fewer address disability. So right now we know that less than half of mothers with newborns have access to any form of social protection benefits, which is a figure that's even higher for adolescent mothers. Um, Social protection has a lot of potential to contribute to tackling gender equality. For example, it can help reduce physical abuse, it can increase women's decision-making power, but it doesn't automatically do that. It has to really be designed and geared towards doing that, not to reinforce harmful gender norms or harmful gender practices and things of this nature. So when social protection is not gender responsive or or even if it's not child sensitive, we tend to find that it fails to address the core needs of the most vulnerable. So that leads to reinforcing the cycle of poverty, um, including its feminization. Um, due to some of the repeated deprivations that households face, uh, things like lack of control over decision-making of resources that women experience, inability to meet economic needs for themselves, for their children, et cetera, et cetera. Could you elaborate perhaps a little more on how these gender considerations intersect with social protection, given this kind of enormous scope uh, and potential for impact? Sure. I mean, I think there's a lot of different ways that gender intersects with social protection, but maybe I'd choose 
three um, to start with. One is addressing gendered risks across the life course. So that means thinking about gender at the outset when someone is a child or when someone is even pregnant with a child, thinking about gender in working age populations, older populations, et cetera. Um, The second would be around access to services. So that means access to health, access to education, access to the labor market, things like this. And then I think the third would probably be economic empowerment, voice and agency. So things like decent and equal working conditions for both women and men. Um, In our recent research from the Gender Responsive and Age-Sensitive Social Protection Program, um, which has been led by Innocenti in collaboration with other UNICEF um, uh, divisions, we know that social protection programs with gender objectives generate better outcomes on women's empowerment. Um, But design and implementation are key, so it doesn't matter if a program has certain objectives, if those objectives then are going to not necessarily be carried out. We also know that cash transfers can reduce intimate partner violence um, by increasing women's economic security, by increasing their empowerment, and by reducing intra-household conflict and tension. Um, We know that child-sensitive social protection improves child well-being and human capital development, and we know that care and family-friendly policies advance gender equality and economic development. So I think there's a lot of different ways that gender intersects with social protection. I think GRASP is a fantastic program for actually delving more into that. Thanks, Lauren. Uh, Niasha, if I could turn to you. GRASP is the gender-responsive, age-sensitive social protection research program. So could you elaborate on how age considerations intersect with social protection? Yes, indeed. Age is an important consideration for social protection, since we all know that the needs and vulnerabilities that individuals face, they do vary by age and life stage. For instance, We know that the needs of an infant and a young child will differ from those of an adolescent. So if we're thinking of um, aspects like nutrition, education, health, or sexual and reproductive health, the life course is especially pertinent for women and girls who face specific risks due to their biological sex. And this is also shaped by prevailing gender norms. At certain life stages and events, such as marriage, childbearing, or retirement, there are specific risks and vulnerabilities that women and girls face. For example, marriage and childbearing can disrupt a girl's education and a woman's participation in the labor market, all of which can increase their risk of poverty. When social protection actually uses a life course approach, it therefore can support individuals, including women and girls, during these critical events. It actually can help disrupt harmful social and gender norms and reduce vulnerability to poverty and ultimately enhance gender equality. Thanks, Niasha. I mean, this is really a substantial agenda then for the social protection sector to play a role uh, in promoting gender equality. could you maybe reflect a little bit on some of the gaps in our knowledge as we, as you know, the, as a global community, we try to deliver on this agenda? Yes, there are several evidence gaps, but I will name a few. I think I'll start with, you know, an important evidence gap that we have, not just for gender responsive social protection, but for social protection as a whole. We still do not have a lot of evidence on the long-term impacts of social protection, including on gender equality. Most of the research that is currently done focuses on the impacts of social protection in the short term or in the medium term, or we're almost always looking at a period of one or two years of implementation. 
In addition to that, as many evidence reviews and synthesis have, have shown, we still need to gather more evidence to understand the role and impact of design and implementation features. We don't have enough evidence on the role of different targeting mechanisms, where we can compare community-based targeting versus means-tested targeting, as an example. We still do not have enough evidence on the role that grievance and communication mechanisms play in, in improving the effectiveness of social protection programs. We also still do not have enough evidence on the impact of social protection on women's agency, which is crucial for their empowerment. In the age that we're living now of the polycrisis era, where we have climate shocks, we also still do not know what is the actual interplay between climate shocks and intimate partner violence. Other research gaps include the lack of evidence on the unique challenges faced by children, families, and especially women and girls in urban areas and how social protection can alleviate those challenges. Most of the research that has been done to date has focused mostly on rural areas in low and middle income countries. And then more importantly, to help our policymakers make informed decisions, it is always crucial that they know which interventions, which programs, which social protection instruments are cost-effective for achieving gender equality. That evidence is still lacking. And then recently we've started to have programs that combine social protection with additional complementary services to try and address some of the structural barriers that the normal and usual social protection programs cannot address. And these programs, which are called cash plus programs, are also now being used to address gender inequality. We still need to continue building evidence on the impact of these cash plus programs on children, on families, and also on gender equality. Thanks, Niasha. And I think both you and Lauren have really sort of elaborated on the why. You know, why do we need to see in greater investments in, uh, you know, gender responsive and age sensitive social protection? And you also laid out, you know, the huge scope of knowledge gaps that we need to be filling. Um, I'd like to now turn perhaps, Lauren, to you. Uh, we now see that many governments are including commitments to reaching women as direct beneficiaries of program or even more explicitly seeing social protection as an instrument of gender equality within the household and within society more broadly. Uh, could you provide some examples of how governments are adopting gender equality approaches in social protection programs? I love this question. Uh, and I love this question because I think it's very exciting to see some of the developments that have been happen happening in terms of governments focusing on making programs have more explicit gender equality outcomes or just be more gender responsive in general. Um, but I think it's also really important to situate this along the spectrum of the gender integration continuum. So, you know, we have some governments that are executing programming, unfortunately, and policies that are gender discriminatory or even gender neutral. And then we have those that are moving in the direction of being more gender sensitive and gender responsive. And then we really have our champion governments that are trying to make uh their social protection programming, more gender transformative, really shifting norms um, for women and men, girls and boys. And so 
I think if you look at programs that might be considered gender discriminatory. So that might be a program that deliberately says that only mothers can be responsible for fulfilling some conditions for their children, such as taking them to health clinic visits or making sure that they're enrolled in school, et cetera. A lot of the conditional cash transfer programs globally inadvertently fall here. They don't necessarily deliberately say that, but they sort of reinforce this this gender norm and stereotype around women's role as caretakers. You have other programs that might be gender neutral, So, for example, a program that does not necessarily consider the gender of the individual who's partaking, like a pension. But if pensions are only provided for the formal sector, and you know that in a particular country, the vast concentration of women is in the informal sector, it's gender neutral in that way and actually has poor outcomes on gender because women are going to be overlooked in terms of receiving a pension, even if that wasn't the aim. So you have programs sort of in that realm. Then you have other ones like the PSNP program, the Productive Social Safety, excuse me, the Productive um, Safety Nets program in Ethiopia, which might be considered more gender sensitive. So they have, for example, public works where households are expected to engage in work and they receive cash from the government for doing that. And they try to make sure that women and men can benefit equally. So they've made some allowances for women, for example, reducing the intensity of their labor requirements or giving them a more flexible schedule Um, and things like this when they're engaging in public works, especially if they might be pregnant or lactating or caring for children. But unfortunately, unfortunately, it sort of reinforces those gender norms around what a woman's role is in the household as a caretaker, right? You might have gender responsive programs like in Sudan, where you see the Maternal and Child Cash Transfer Program, the MCCT, which specifically integrated gender objectives and metrics. And like I mentioned before, GRASP has found that when gender equality outcomes are actually thought of at the beginning of a program and integrated as objectives, you tend to see better um, better outcomes as a whole. Then you have these exciting programs like the gender transformative programming you see in Nepal with the Betty Pachao, Betty Padao program, which specifically wanted to address social norms around the value of girl children in the household and how to ensure that they remain in school and aren't married off. And so they provide social protection benefits, cash transfers to households and bicycles so that girls can get to school. Um, as long as a household makes sure that they continue school through their primary years and secondary years and that they are not um, coerced into child marriage in any form. So I think there's a wide spectrum of what we're seeing governments do, but I overall think that it's a very positive direction and we really need to continue advocating and pushing for it using evidence like what's coming out of GRASP. Um, Some of the things we've learned that really help that evidence to be impactful is that engaging governments in the design of research at the outset, for example, that is aligned to their policy needs and creates that direct link between the evidence and policy action, that can be really, really successful. And even putting research in the hands of advocacy actors, so whether that's local civil society, grassroots organizations, et cetera, they really can help drive some of these outcomes to demonstrate that the evidence is here. You should make your programs more gender responsive, more gender transformative, and here are ways that you can do it. Great. Um, and building on that, Niasha, I, you know, how does how do we look at the extent to which uh, gender and age considerations are factored not only in the in the overall sort of intent of programs, uh, you know, in, along the ways that uh, Lauren has described, but also how they are factored into the um, into the design and implementation strategies, you know, to the design, the actually operationalization of intent, and then the implementation of that. Do we have any examples that you could share with us? Yes, actually, we we do have 
very good examples of social protection programs that are addressing gender and age in their design and implementation. So I will describe two case studies from Angola and Tanzania. Starting with Angola, here we had the first ever social cash transfer program known as Valocrianta, which was piloted in six municipalities across three provinces in the country. And this was an age-sensitive, unconditional cash transfer program that targeted food-insecure households with children who were under the age of five. And for each child, a household was receiving a monthly cash transfer, and they would receive cash transfers up to three eligible children in each household. And our research actually shows that this age-sensitive cash transfer program improved child well-being. It also improved access to preventive health care, household investments, and food security. And most of the recipients of the cash who were supposed to be caregivers, they were actually female. And we did also find that they benefited from greater involvement in household decision making. So that's one example of an age-sensitive uh, social protection program. The second example that I will talk about is from Tanzania. And here, the government implemented a cash plus pilot known as Ujana Salama, which factors both age and gender into its design and implementation. So in this pilot, the government and, and UNICEF and other partners were aiming to improve the future economic opportunities of adolescents, and especially to facilitate their safe and healthy transitions to adulthood. So the program targeted adolescents who were aged between 14 and 19 years old, who were already receiving cash transfers through the national program called the Productive Social Safety Net Program. The additional components to the cash transfers were gender sensitive and one could argue potentially transformative. For example, both boys and girls received training on sexual and reproductive health and HIV life skills. They also received training on understanding what are gender equitable attitudes and norms. And they were also mentored on livelihood options and choices that were suitable within their context. And then in addition to that, the adolescents also received productive grants for education or for starting businesses. And then on the supply side, the same intervention also strove to strengthen health facilities and also facilitate linkages to youth-friendly services for HIV, sexual and reproductive health, and violence response. Our research shows that this Cash Plus program had multiple positive impacts on adolescent well-being, and there were actually substantial improvements in female economic participation, the reductions in the experience of sexual violence, and there were actually improvements in sexual and reproductive health seeking by males. And these particular impacts that I've just mentioned, they were sustained even after the pilot had ended, which is remarkable. These two examples actually demonstrate how social protection programs can explicitly address gender and age in their design. And the second example was especially a cash plus design that integrates social protection with complementary age-sensitive and gender-responsive interventions. And I would say overall, these two case studies also show that when gender and age are explicit objectives, this can actually lead to positive gendered and age-sensitive outcomes. So now let's, let us talk about UNICEF's work in this area. 
And here's a question for you, Lauren. How does the work on gender and age and social protection tie into UNICEF's mandate? Sure, I think there's a few ways um, that it ties into UNICEF's mandate. One is because of our social protection framework and our UNICEF social protection framework, which echoes the similar components that you see across many different social protection frameworks with other international organizations. Um, It does include a focus on inclusive social protection. That means social protection that's responsive and sensitive to the needs of all children of all varying types, whether those are girl children, children with disabilities, children on the move, et cetera, um, by using specific social protection instruments that explicitly promote social inclusion and equity. Um, so that it also is considering the added vulnerabilities that stem from social exclusion that children might face. Um, Out of five different actions within that social protection framework, universal coverage is one, which has a specific connotation on providing universal access to social protection and ensuring that systems are rights-based, gender sensitive and inclusive, and really leave no one behind. Um, So our work on gender responsive social protection via the social protection framework recognizes that Sometimes there are these differential investments in girls and boys at an early age that then progressively widens the gender gap as they grow up. So to address address gender inequality, we really need to think of it as something that's fundamental to achieving some sort of transformational change, which is exactly what social protection is trying to do, transform society so that people have their, their basic needs that are met. And social protection can really only be considered successful and even child sensitive when it's gender responsive. Then we also have our gender action plan. Our gender action plan includes UNICEF's commitment to gender equality and to integrating gender equality results in all areas of our strategic plan. And yes, we do have one strategic plan element that is focused on inclusive social protection in our goal area five. Um, So through the gender action plan, UNICEF invests in evidence-based gender and disability responsive sector planning and monitoring strengthening national capacities and data delivery and accountability for results, and then improving linkages with social protection systems to reach the most vulnerable. Um, It also considers equal distribution around care work and social norms that promote gender equality for long-term preconditions for sustainable poverty reduction. So we really see this across many different um, frameworks, I think, that UNICEF predicates its work upon. And so if you combine this, the gender action plan with the social protection framework, et cetera, we really see that there is a broader conceptual framework that UNICEF is supporting and is something that is very well illuminated and grasped around gender responsive and age sensitive social protection. So you see this really throughout our strategic plan and to some of our very foundational frameworks that we execute with our partners. Thank you for that answer, Lauren. And we also do know that evidence generation is very critical for achieving or for fulfilling UNICEF's mandate as you've described it. So my next question is for you, Ramya. What is GRASP and what does it entail? So actually, we've already spoken a bit here and there about GRASP uh, or in this in the duration of this conversation. But perhaps to bring it all together, uh, a reminder that GRASP stands for Gender Responsive Age Sensitive Social Protection. And we are referring here to a five-year research program uh, at Innocenti, but working with across UNICEF aimed at strengthening our knowledge about the role of social protection in enhancing gender equality. And uh, uh, the research has been conducted in nine countries, and the program has three streams. The first stream focuses on conceptualizing the linkages between social protection inputs 
and gender equality outcomes. Uh, you know, in order to pr- improve gender responsive planning, monitoring and evaluation of social protection programs and systems, we need to have a strong conceptual framework. We need to know what it is that we are measuring and we need to know how we're analyzing the data and evidence we collect on gender equality outcomes, which is, as we know, a very complex um, uh, area of outcomes, which depends on a range of factors. In this stream of research, we have, for example, undertaken a systematic review of available literature reviews on gender and social protection, based on which we have developed a robust conceptual framework, as well as an analytical framework that we are applying to our research. This includes assessing the gender responsiveness of social protection programs and policies along a continuum from gender discriminatory to gender transformative. Uh, Lauren spoke to that a little while ago. Um, And we also have focused on identifying the change pathways at individual household and societal levels that we can identify from uh, existing research on on social protection, particularly uh, the impact evaluations that already exist. And in doing so, we've created a framework for our research, which we've then used in our second stream, which is focused on generating evidence on the impacts of social protection on these gender equality outcomes. Uh, And in particular, we are interested in how and why uh, these outcomes are achieved or not achieved. In other words, we ask, how does the gender equality intent of different social protection programs translate into outcomes for women and girls? And what are some of the contextual and design factors that may help explain results? Some of these early findings have already been tabled here in in this conversation, but we're really looking forward to the full uh, set of results that we will get from our uh, studies of large-scale programs in six countries, Tanzania, the Democratic Republic of Congo, Burkina Faso, Mali, Ethiopia, and Angola. The third stream builds on this and it goes a step further by studying these large-scale programs or other large-scale programs within the broader social protection systems that we need to secure institutionalization of these gender equality objectives. We need this institutionalization to ensure sustainability, both in terms of the policies that need to be in place, as well as the legal frameworks, but also the financial resources. Without sustainable uh, financing, we will not necessarily see the kind of long-term change uh, that we need to see to, to, to sustain gender equality outcomes. And Niasha, you spoke to that a little earlier, right? One of the research gaps you mentioned was about not, uh, not knowing the long-term requirements for st- sustainability. So in this stream, we, have, we draw on five studies in Ethiopia, Angola, Vietnam, Mexico, and Uruguay. And these studies shed light on how gender equality objectives can best be enshrined in law and policy, as well as in the institutions and organizations that make up a social protection system. Because in these five countries, there are examples of uh, recent reform, programmatic or policy reform, that really take us to the heart of these questions. What are the levers of change that are needed to ensure this so that reforms are gender uh, responsive? And by, with, through interviews, uh, qualitative interviews with some of the key actors engaged in these social protection reforms, we really question or look at closely the broader political economy considerations surrounding reforms and the institutional capacities that can either enable or constrain 
the integration of gender equality objectives into systems. And we feel that's really important because programs can demonstrate uh, the, 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 at the levels of scale the kinds of change that are possible with social protection inputs for, for gender equality outcomes. But then we also need to look at how we sustain these through building and enabling political environment, institutional capacity, financial resourcing, and so on. So taken together, I think the GRASP research across these three streams will provide a comprehensive view of how to think about gender-responsive social protection, how to act on it through programmatic interventions, and how to adapt existing systems to deliver social protection in sustainable ways to enhance gender equality. Amazing. Rami has just given us a fantastic overview of GRASP that we've been hinting at throughout this podcast. So um, now I'd, I'd like to just very directly address where we're hoping to go from here. So Nyasha, a question for you. What are we hoping to achieve with this work on GRASP and, and the way forward, like Ramya was just mentioning? This is a great question, Lauren. And I mean, just to recap, GRASP research is actually motivated by the fact that not much is known about the potential potential of gender responsive and asensitive social protection. Whether this is at program level or whether it is at system level, policy level, as Ramia was just describing when she was uh, talking about the third research stream. So what GRASP research intends to do is to contribute much needed evidence on what works, how, and why regarding gender responsive and age sensitive social protection, especially in low and middle income countries. This evidence is actually relevant because we are not only focusing at the program level, but we're looking also at the social protection uh, system level through the second and the third research streams. And once we have this evidence, our goal is to disseminate it widely to policymakers and key stakeholders in order to promote uptake and also inform decision making by governments, UNICEF, development partners, and practitioners. And in addition to that, we are also anticipating that GRASP research will promote and influence decision-making on how to incorporate gender and life considerations into social protection systems, programs, and institutions. And it is also important to add that the GRASP conceptual framework um, that Ramya described earlier, and also the additional knowledge outputs that will be produced through this program, these are going to be global public goods that can be utilized by various audiences and can actually inform future research. Amazing. Thank you so much, um, Nyasha, for that. So now I'll turn to you, Ramya, with the, the last question and the last word of the day. How do we think that GRASP is relevant beyond UNICEF and why is this important for other global actors? Well, well Lauren, we're in the sort of final stretch of the SDGs. So let me start with that, that, you know, we do have uh, efforts um, and you've you've pointed to some of the challenges and gaps, including in coverage uh, of social protection programs. But SDG target 1.3 does require or governments have committed to implementing nationally appropriate social protection systems and measures for all, including uh, social protection floors and, and achieving by 2030 substantial coverage of the poor and the vulnerable. So um, in our uh, view, GRASP's research has to be targeted at supporting governments and other partners to 
fulfill that target. Um, and we need to, so we, we have a potential here to influence or inform uh, that journey that we will see and that acceleration that we need to see in the, in the, in the coming years, particularly to look at the vulnerable um, and the poor in terms of the context of gender uh, disaggregated outcomes, because we recognize that when we look within the category of the poor and the vulnerable, we, we see that you know, women and girls in particular have specific vulnerabilities that are not often uh, reached or addressed through existing programs. So I think that's the first um, uh, consideration. And also linked to that is that when you, the way we've talked and seen the potential for social protection programs, we can see that actually the range of outcomes that can be realized through more gender responsive and age sensitive social protection is is enormous you know it can it has the it has the potential to impact on a range of sdgs and sdg uh, outcomes uh, across uh, you know across the different goal areas so i i think this is one of the um, you know one of the wishes we have is that we're able to use this evidence to really help that acceleration uh, towards the sdgs uh, relatedly, I think there is an increasing recognition uh, about uh, the, uh, building on that about the in inclusiveness and comprehensiveness, uh, and I think specifically on systems, on ensuring that we understand how systems can be more gender responsive and address life course needs, it requires very specific tools and specific measures and specific actions. So I think the evidence generated by GRASP will be extremely relevant uh, more specifically as well uh, in, in terms of saying, how do we do this? Not just why should we do it, but how do we do this? And I think this evidence can really support all the actors involved in this space in terms of uh, you know, strengthening what we do uh, in, in, this, in this area of inclusive social protection. So I think GRASP, um, uh, uh, research findings will therefore also strengthen the existing evidence base, as Niasha has said, but it will also inform the future of um, how we how we go about it as, as a global community. And I would just end by saying that, you know, as we go along and add uh, evidence to, to this journey, we need to really focus much more on operational and implementation research. It's paramount if we need, if we are to help deliver this promise of social protection that is both gender responsive and age sensitive. Thank you for listening to the first episode of the GRASP podcast. Today's speakers were Nyasha Tirivai, Ramya Subramanian, and Lauren Whitehead. You can find more details on their work and where to follow it in the show notes. This podcast is written and produced by Stephanie Curran and Yasmina Silva from UNICEF Innocenti. Stay tuned for the next episode of the GRASP podcast.